Welcome to the Words and Nerds podcast. I'm Danny V, podcast host and children's author. I also do some work in publishing in acquisitions and publicity. As we hurdle towards one million plays, we'll continue to provide you with the conversational, vulnerable, honest and fun chats with your favourite authors across all genres. Check out our takeover episodes, usually released on a Friday, and our spin-offs released during the month. Thank you for being here, being part of the journey, and supporting Aussie Creatives. Welcome to the Words and Nerds podcast, where we bring literary goodness straight to your ears. Today, I'll be talking to four finalists for the NIO Marsh Awards to recognise excellence in crime fiction, mystery and thriller writing. The awards were founded by journalist and legal editor Craig Sisterson in 2010 and are named after Dame NIO Marsh, one of the four queens of crime of the golden age of detective fiction. I thought in my notes it said uh, journalist and legend editor Craig Sisterson, which I also think works as well. So <laughs> <laughs> this year's event celebrates the finalists and announcing the winners will be held in November in Christchurch, Dame Nio's hometown, which is nice in association with Word Christchurch. Today's guests are four of 16 finalists across three categories. I'm going to introduce them, but I'm also going to introduce them with a little bit of a fun fact. They're just, they're fun if you like crime, and then we might have a little <laughs> chat about that before we uh, go to elevator pitches. So first up, Fiona Sussman, Best Novel Finalist for The Doctor's Wife and Past Best Novel Winner for Last Time We Spoke. Fun fact about Fiona, Fiona worked as a doctor, which may explain the title of her book, uh, before becoming an Earth author and is in the running to become only the second author to win multiple Best Novel Awards in the history of the NIO Awards. It's Paul Cleave. Paul Cleave is the only multiple-time Best Novel winner. He's won three times and well-deservedly so. We love Paul Cleave's writing. So welcome, Fiona. You're currently in New Zealand. Uh, tell me about, you know, your fun fact, being a doctor, doctor, author, similar, same, oh, completely different. <laughs> yeah, look, they seem quite disparate professions, but actually um, I think I probably came to both of them from a similar point place. Um, I grew up in a publisher's home and was all headed to become um, a writer when um, my father became very unwell and was um, we were cared for by this phenomenal GP who was just an amazing human being, looked after us so holistically and um, was very involved in fighting apartheid at the time, would testify against the government when detainees were tortured and died in custody. And so I changed career path and um, began a career in medicine, which I absolutely loved. Um, when a young family came along, I felt quite conflicted. Um, for me, medicine was a vocation and um, I wanted to give it my all. And I'd also been reading science and medical journals for so long and was really missing that creative outlet. So um, took a year out from medicine to um, look after my young family and write a book. And that was one year turned to two, turned to 20. <laughs> oh, wow, how time flies. And I love, I think you're right in saying, you know, being a doctor and being an author, you can both really impact the world in very different ways. But I think, you know, books impact the world as, as does medicine. So, yeah, they are kind of aligned, even though you don't think so. Uh, next guest is Scott Bainbridge, Best Nonfiction Finalist for The Fix and Multiple Times NIO Finalist. Scott, your fun fact, these are all from Craig, by the way, so yep. he, he's the fun fact master. Uh, Scott is a multiple times NIO finalist and interestingly has also been a judge when you haven't had a book, because otherwise that would be weird. Um, he's a leading missing persons expert. I found this fascinating and has written several books about missing people and unsolved mysteries to historic true crimes. Tell me, how do you become a leading missing persons expert? And that must be very rewarding, but also very hard at times, depending on the outcome. Yeah, um, look, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say I'm a, I'm, I'm a leading expert. Um, but um, look, I, I did a long time ago when I first got into writing was start to look at uh, investigating cold cases or old missing person cases. And after a period of time, of course, you know, um, when the, when the fuss dies down and the, and the leads dry up and the, and the media loses interest, there's nobody to pick up pick up sort of the slack as to what you know what happened. And I found that um, by having a look at some of these old cases from say 20, 30 years ago, 
that there are a lot of alliances, you know, within family members of, you know, have broken down or whatever, and it's a lot easier. Well, actually, I found as an author a lot easier to get information from people as opposed to if I was a journalist or or a, or a police personnel sort of thing. So, um, you, you know, my interest really sort of spurred from there. And, and, and um, initially, when I first started writing about missing people, I thought, well, I'd just cover a historical angle about the case. But then I found um, more things kept popping up and it was more of a reinvestigation. So, you know, my writing um, journey deviated quite quite significantly. Mm. And, yeah, so reinvestigated quite a few, yeah. Fascinating, absolutely fascinating. Wow. Our next guest, Tom Barrigwinneth, best first novel finalist for Paper Cage. You are currently in Paris. A fun fact, also I'm very jealous that you're sitting in Paris. Not that Sydney isn't beautiful, but hey, change is good. Uh, Tom grew up in rural New Zealand and you won the text publishing prize for Paper Cage, your debut, and it's getting published in the UK and the USA next year. How amazing is that debut book? Tell us about that. Yeah. No, it's been great. Um, yeah, thanks, Danny. And, and uh, you know, a real surprise to me. Uh, I think especially I just want to give thanks to the, the, um, the family of Michael Gifkins for sponsoring the original prize because it really is sort of such a, a step up um, into the world of publishing for, for a, a novice novelist. So, yeah, it's been been wonderful so far. Fantastic. And how's Paris, I have to ask? <laughs> it's great. It's starting to cool down ever so slightly now. Um, but, yeah, still fantastic. And uh, and it's absolutely full of rugby fans at the moment, as you can imagine. So, uh, oh, true. There's no, yeah, no, no shortage of, uh, of options for watching and uh, enjoying the games right now. So, yeah. Well, look, I don't know my differences between football and rugby and AFL, but I know there's a lot going on in Sydney and Melbourne at the moment, too, with some finals yeah. happening. Uh, and yeah, I've seen some... Seen some uh, I was just going to say, I've seen some rather, rather dejected-looking Australian fans uh, walking around, but maybe we won't won't dwell on that too much. <laughs> and our last but not least guest, Michael Bennett, finalist for Best First Novel and Best Novel for Better Better the Blood, and past winner of Best Nonfiction for In Dark Places. Now, Michael, your fun fact is you are a screenwriter and director, but although Better the Blood, which was a finalist in Best First Novel and Best Novel, is your first novel, you're actually already a NIO winner as you won the first ever non-fiction prize in 2017 for your outstanding book in dark places so you're going from one to the other tell us about that yeah um uh, first of all it's, it's so nice to be here with all you guys and um and thank you for the invitation Danny yeah um I guess it's I just feel that telling a story is telling a story um and it, it kind of feels a bit funny to say it, to even say it, but I really don't take a different approach to between screenwriting and prose, um, including between nonfiction prose and fiction prose. My my goal when I write is really to take the reader or to take the audience and place them in the room with the characters to to be there, smelling what the characters are smelling, hearing what they're hearing, seeing what they're seeing. Um, and and bringing to absolute, you know, making it not a journalistic objective perspective, but to take the reader and to take the audience in there and sit them down and have them present. And and I guess it, it was what I kind of learnt from screenwriting that that kind of like deep involvement where the close up is the primary form of communication. Um, and um, I guess I've sort of just continued writing in the same kind of style to the point where I kind of like I'm embarrassed to say it a little bit but um I can't write in the past tense um in the plu perfect or whatever it is that sort of fancier novelists than I write in. <laughs> um I can only write in the present tense which is um again that's from screenwriting because everything that happens on screen is mm. obviously in the present tense even a flashback happens in the present tense because the actors are actually doing something now so um so yeah it's kind of much of a muchness to me it's um all about the emotion and audience and reader involvement um uh, through any kind of genre of writing for me that's yeah. really interesting about the present tense and you know what you're saying about how they you know you don't see the different process i actually agree with that with all of art you know because art is created from nothing to sort of make people feel something and i think they all sort of feed into each other whether you're painting or drawing or writing or podcasting or whatever it is they all kind of feed into each other i think mm -hmm. no absolutely it's uh, it's all about trying to 
I guess get to the audience where it matters and, and mm. here. And, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm. Love that. Well, now I'm going to do author's favourite parts, which is an elevator pitch. I say that with sarcasm because everybody hates an elevator pitch. But it does help our audience. It does help our listeners sort of place your book and think, oh, that sounds like a good read, um, whether they've read it or not. No spoilers, though, just in case they haven't read it. Uh, Fiona, can you start with The Doctor's Wife and give us an elevator pitch for that? Yeah, right. Well, um, Danny, it's um, it revolves around a um, long-standing, supposedly tight friendship between two couples um, that is shattered first by illness and then an unexplained violent death. And it opens, and it's no real spoilers right at the beginning, it opens with Carmen and Dino, a journalist being diagnosed with metastatic brain cancer. And we witness the sort of terrifying fallout for her family and young teenage boys as she undergoes frightening personality changes. And halfway through the book, um, their close friend, Tibby Lamb, is found at the bottom of Browns Bay Cliffs. And so the novel tips from being a psychological drama into a full-blown whodunit and um, Detective Ramesh Bandara and Hilary Stock come on to try and solve a mystery. The story has been told from a number of different characters' perspectives, some of whom are lying, some of whom are unwittingly lying, and some of whom are lying to themselves. And so this unlikely detective duo are charged with trying to get to the truth, see who in fact is telling the truth. Mm, and I love how you've used your past career, put all that knowledge into the <laughs> new career. I mean, you'd, you'd have to, wouldn't you? Because most people would be consulting doctors. You've just got it all there. So that must be a bit of an advantage for you. It, it, look, it was the first time I've ever actually had a medical backdrop. And, you know, your subconscious, of course, is working on a story ahead of time. <laughs> yeah. But as it started, as the story started to appear, I sort of had a quiet chuckle to myself and thought, oh, at long last you kind of tying <laughs> together these two professions. But I do have to say that I am a doctor and I am a doctor's wife and this novel is not about <laughs> me or my family. <laughs> there have been no murders in the Sussman household. Well, that's, that's, that's positive. Let's keep it that way. <laughs> uh, Scott, tell me about the fix. Sure. Well, look, I, I write nonfiction and um, my last lot of books were about um, true crime and the in the, in, in the 1950s and the 1960s. And so from that, I um, made a lot of contacts with the old retired detectives and their old retired crooks. And one day, I, um, one of the retired detectives rang me up and said, hey, look, I've got the story that I've been sitting on for years, um, and I think it would make a good book. So I heard about it, and I thought, yeah, I'll give it a go. It was really good. So um, The Fix, which is... Uh, is um, it, it, It's set in 1966 in New Zealand, where... Uh, four grifters from Australia, from Sydney, um, came across to set up a, um, I guess you'd call it a, um, a pyramid scheme where uh, they were going to be selling cosmetics because um, co cosmetics back in New Zealand, wouldn't they couldn't be sold on weekends or and only in pharmacies. Well, the idea was to sell, get them into all the dairies and um, people that were interested in, in buying a piece of it um, they could sort of buy their own zone and, and, and have so many dairies in their zone and they were, you know, they were going to um, profit from getting these these cheap cosmetics into the supermarket, uh, into the dairies. But in, in, in theory, it sounded really well, really good and um, and I think it probably would have worked, but these guys that organised it had no plan whatsoever. And so the night before the um, this um, this big business in New Zealand was going to launch, the, the, the guys, the four grifters, they, they went their separate ways and um, they skedaddled with the loot. So the so the investigation pretty much um, chased these guys all around the world as as these guys were ripping off the FBI, the um, uh, the, the Mounties in Canada and the Scotland Yard, and they all gave you know a lot of the um, police authorities around the world gave up on them. But the New Zealand there were three detectives that didn't give up on them, and after two years they they did they did bring them to justice. But what what I really liked about this aspect is I've read a lot of books about Australian crime, true crime, and um, this book has a lot of crossovers with true characters like um, Murray Riley, who was a, um, a Golden Boy detective of the 1960s in Sydney, and he turned to become one of the world's biggest drug couriers. 
And so this book is this book starts off with um, with Riley um, because he was involved with bribing the detectives in New Zealand. There's a lot of bribery going on with the Sydney police back then that um, came to the fore in the 1970s and 80s. So this this book essentially tells a lot of the story about the early corruption of the 1960s that the Sydney police were involved in. So that's why I think it would actually appeal to Australian readers. Mm, absolutely, and fascinating stuff, especially all, that, the, all those things that come out later. I think yeah. are really fascinating. Yeah. Uh, Tom, can you tell us about Paper Cage? Yeah, absolutely. Um, thanks, Danny, and uh, yeah, great to be here with everyone. Um, yeah, so Pepper Cage is a story of missing children in a small town, uh, New Zealand, well, small New Zealand town, that of Marston, which is uh, where I'm from. And it follows um, the, the story of Lorraine Henry, who's a file clerk in the local uh, police station. And, and Scott, maybe you, you'll probably be, probably be able to tell me whether or not this is, in fact, a real role that police stations do have or not. But, um, so I've in, made, possibly invented the role of file clerk uh, for Lorraine <laughs> in, um, in a small town uh, police station. No, you're right. You're right. <laughs> okay, cool. There we go. Yeah, um, yeah and so really uh, there's a series of children go missing and Lorraine is sort of sidelined at first, but it emerges that because of her local knowledge and her community and family ties, she actually has sort of the key to unlocking this mystery of, of what's been happening with these kids. So, um, yeah, it's really a, a bit of a, a sort of thriller and a, and a whodunit in a way, but also kind of a sneaky or maybe not so sneaky sort of study of Pākehā paternalism. Um, and, you know, a lot of the prevailing attitudes like within the Pākehā community um, in, in New Zealand, which, um, you know, I really wanted to try and explore uh, with, with my, with, you know, my, my history and my, uh, my understanding of the Marston community. Um, as well. So, yeah, it was also a bit of, um, for me, being being overseas and writing about home, a little bit of free sort of mental travel, really, because, you know, during the pandemic lockdown and everything, I did feel, I mean, I love Paris, obviously, but um, I did feel a little homesick and it was uh, it was quite a cheap way to spend time back home. You know? <laughs> Have you gone back since you've written it? Because I'm just wondering, because I, I always romanticise the past, I just can't help it, but did you feel like you were doing a bit <laughs> yeah. of that? Uh, a little bit. I mean, no, the, the, you wouldn't say that my depiction of Masterton is necessarily that romanticized. Um, but uh, no, I have been back for, for the launch, um, you know, since the book came out. And uh, and it was really wonderful to, to be home. And coincidentally, I mean, Scott, you mentioned you were in uh, Hamilton. I grew up um, between Masterton and Te Aumutu. So the sort of small town, um, you know, New Zealand connection, yeah. uh, you know, it, it really does does um, hold up, I think, quite nicely in a lot of narrative. Yeah. It sure does. Yeah, you're quite right. Huh? Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. And Michael, can you tell us about Better the Blood? Um, so Better the Blood is a crime novel. It's um, set in Auckland uh, today. Um, and it's the story of Hannah Westerman, who's a, um, a Māori senior detective in Auckland CIB, which is, I guess, the equivalent of your feds, maybe. Um, and Hannah discovers um, a connection between a series of killings that have happened that haven't been, no one's joined the dots before. And what she realises is that in the 19th century, during the bloody, violent, awful colonisation of New Zealand, a, a rangatira, a, a Māori chief, was uh, brutally executed on one of the, the mountains in, in central Auckland. Um, and he was executed by a troop of six British British soldiers. And what Hannah discovers is that the two killings that have happened today are descendants eight generations later from two of the soldiers that were in the troop that killed the Māori chief. Um, so she works out that uh, two people have died, um, another four will die um, unless she finds the killer and stops them. Um, and as she gets closer and closer to finding the killer, um, it becomes increasingly complex for her as a Māori cop um, uh, because what she starts to discover is that the things that the killer are talking about is talking about, um, the things that they are trying to bring to the cold light of day by their actions. Um, she, she as a Māori cop starts to uh, find um, herself extremely conflicted because she starts to understand that even though the killer is doing something abhorrent, what they're talking about is, uh, in in many ways, very true. Mm -hmm. So it's a it's a complicated, uh, sort of a complex, um, twisty turny tale um, where the cop starts to get closer to the killer and um, question her own 
thoughts. Mm, nothing like a bit of moral ambiguity in a crime mm. novel. Love. Yeah, <laughs> lots of grey. Grey yeah. is good. But it's true. I love, that's what I, I do love about crime. It puts you in a position where you think, hmm, well, what would I do? You know, we can all very idealistic say, oh, no, I would do the right thing. But when, you know, things like that are involved or when your children are involved or someone you love them is involved, you don't actually know what what you would do or what part of you comes out at that point. So I always I love that kind of stuff where you start thinking about, you know, that aspect that you wouldn't usually think of because we try and live, you know, as that moral person. So I find that fascinating. Yeah. yeah. I've got a question for you. I mean, I, I love crime fiction and nonfiction and it's just a genre that continues to stand the test of time. And I think these days, particularly crime fiction has so much in it you know it's got your moral ambiguity and it's got your crime it's got that sort of justice at the end most of the time it's got the twists and turns and great characters it's got everything so why do you think it resonates so well with audiences i might start with tom sure well you know you might regret starting with me danny because um <laughs> i i was quite surprised to hear my book Sort of being received and talked about as a crime novel because i mean and it sounds a bit naive to say but um i really just just initially start with the ca the case study and the character study of lorraine and sort of what her daily life looked like what her, her family connections looked like sort of where her daily tensions and, and joys were and then sort of wrapping a little bit of a, a capital p sort of plot around that and, and having this missing children element and and the whole procedural stuff that sort of came came second and so then I, I, I mentioned this to a friend of mine who had read the book and she said, you idiot, like, of course, this is a crime novel. Like, what are you even talking about? <laughs> um, so, no, but I mean, to answer your question, I think the reason that it appeals so much is, um, you know, as a genre, it does come with a certain level of sort of coded expectation and uh, and kind of payoffs that the reader will will expect. There's going to be some mystery and some, you know, some revelation that, that uncovers uh, what, whatever is at the heart of that mystery. And I think that, um, you know, that's a, that for, for a lot of readers, that's really where the, the heart of it is. They want that sort of payoff. Um, and, you know, having attended um, Harrogate, uh, the, the Literary Crime Festival um, in, in, um, in, in the UK just a few months ago, to see the sort of community of, of crime readers and just the breadth of crime fiction that's being published these days, both, you know, fiction and nonfiction, uh, you know, it was, it was really heartening to see how much passion and how much enjoyment there is for the genre. So, yeah. yeah, I see that. Absolutely. Michael, what about you? What do you think resonates with audiences so much about the work that you do? <laughs> Um, during COVID, I wasn't in Paris, unfortunately, Tom, but I, like the rest of the world, fell in love with Wordle. Um, I, I would be up at midnight, literally, um, waiting for the next Wordle to come through because I really wanted to get down to, familiar. to the magic sort of like three, three guesses and I, I got down to two once. And, and, um, and to me, like a lot of it is Wordle. A lot of it is the the incredible satisfaction that an audience and a reader gets to see um, something to be to feel that they're participating in the solving of something, which is I think kind of like part of the pleasure that you know like you give the the reader the the audience enough clues to go, for them to go by the time it starts to unravel. Oh yeah, that did. I, that was in the back of my mind. I'm, maybe I'm almost as smart as this person who's as a detective, and and, um, and so yeah, it's a it's a little bit of that. The, the, you know that, that kind of sense of in a world where we don't have much control, like we had in COVID. That's why I think Wordle became so popular because at least we could control the Wordle quiz every day and hopefully nail it. Um, and maybe it's a little bit like that with crime. Um, and I think, you know, maybe the other thing is a little bit of the kind of the reassurance that, you know, I mean, I don't know what the statistics are about how many crime stories end up with um, the crime being solved, but I imagine it's sort of quite high and, um, you know, reassurance that there's, you know, there's good and bad in the world and good tends to overcome bad. But then you've got the really interesting stuff that does happen, like with Patricia Highsmith, with Tom Ripley, where you're the audience is actually quite brilliantly manipulated into rooting for the for the baddie and really hoping that Tom gets away with it every time and <laughs> and, and and no country for old men um with Cormac McCarthy um where absolutely the you know um the baddest guy kind of walks out the other end of the story and um so yeah I think we're 
readers like black and white and it gets really interesting when it's in, in the grey. Yeah. Mm. I actually heard that particularly during COVID or particularly you know, in different countries where there is some unrest that you wouldn't think you'd want to read crime, but people did because there was a sense of justice and reassurance at the end that good will, you know, would will reign over evil no matter how bad things get. I found that really interesting. Fiona, what about you? What do you think resonates with audiences about what you write? Yeah, well, I, I would I would certainly concur with um with Tom and Michael that they've said so far. I think that there is this fascination with um worlds that we most of us will hopefully never actually um you know have intimate knowledge of, and so there's that curiosity, and so you get to in a crime novel navigate the sort of emotional roller coaster of of um living in that world, and then the incredibly attractive um resolution of hopefully good winning out over evil. I think um, probably speaking to initially a little bit what Tom was saying um, with my first novel that I had really conceptualized as a social justice novel when it won the Naya Marsh I was delighted but I was gobsmacked I thought oh aren't crime novels you know who done it mm-hmm. and the, I as a result of the award, I got to go over to bloody Scotland in Stirling, and it was there I discovered this incredible breadth of writing that falls under the banner of crime fiction, from your cosy murder mysteries and your police procedures, all the way through really to your literary crime, which uses, um, you know, which is really you, crime is the prism to explore issues in society. And so there's certainly something for everyone, um, you know, falling under that banner of crime fiction. And so um, I think each of the points we've touched on today, there are different aspects of it that appeal. Um, Just hearing what you were saying as well, Michael, about, you know, solving, I think that there is enormous satisfaction in kind of working supposedly alongside the author to get to the answer. And I think great crime writing allows the reader to feel like they've actually almost got even one ahead of the author. So, yeah, it's a great, it's a great genre. I, I read a lot of crime and I like it when I can solve the, the crime within about 80% of the novel. If it's too soon, I'm a bit oh, I'm a bit bummed. If I'm too late, I'm like, oh, my God, what am I thinking? So I like it if I can guess around the 75% mark. I'm like, yeah, that's a sweet spot for me. I don't know what it's like for other readers. <laughs> Scott, what about you? <clears throat> what do you think resonates with audiences? Oh, look, I think, like, if I think about the the, the books that I'm working on and, and the ones that I've recently done, which is about, as I said, crime in the, in the 60s and 70s, 50s to 70s, I think there's a there's an element of like particularly with male readers that contact me that there's a, a feeling of you know they've stuck one to the authorities you know I'd like to do something like that and I'm not talking about you know committing horrible murders or anything like that but you know prison escapes or um, robbing banks things like that you know there, there's a degree some people think well actually I've I've just got a you know I've just got a life you know you know, nine to five job, you know, and family, etc. But, you know, boy, you know, these guys, um, you know, were onto something, you know, back then. And they, they weren't bad people. They were just scallywags. And, you know, and, and so there's, yeah, as I say, there's a degree of, of um, perhaps a bit of, bit of desire to actually want to walk on the wild side mm. to some degree. Mm. Yeah, and you can explore that in the safety of your lounge room. You don't actually have to rob a bank. And now, yeah. I mean, you rob a bank, you come away with nothing, right? Does anyone have cash in their banks anymore? Oh, gosh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a different world, isn't it? Yeah, well, certainly looking at some of the procedures and some of the cases I'm looking at now, it's like, well, you know, um, and, and even reading some of the, 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 the history of, of, of crime in New Zealand, well, things changed a lot in the 90s and yeah. the 2000s because... You know, with with everything going to the to a credit card and um, you know cash just not being or very rarely used, banks weren't being robbed. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Last time they were robbed, it was uh, in Point Break, um, <laughs> that famous nineties yeah, yeah. film, <laughs> which did glamorise robbing a bank too. I think. <laughs> um, I want to ask you. You know, I've heard a lot about uh, revelations and twists and turns, mysteries, moral ambiguity, and you know. The, technology as technology 
uh, changes throughout time. I mean, much harder to get away with a crime these days with CCTV and DNA and all those kind of things. So I wanted to ask you, you know, relevant to what you're writing, what are the challenges of writing crime fiction or non-fiction? Um, let's start with Michael. Oh, I was kind of enjoying being the last on the list there. There'd be time to think of a moderately intelligent answer. Um, technology. Um, yeah, it's it's kind of like, I guess my kind of process is in almost everything is to try and get as close to like 100% authenticity as possible. So I have a kind of, I mean, I just don't want to look like a dick. Um, when it gets out there, and, and I think that's so the motto have... for life, Michael. I think that's the yeah. motto for life. Don't be yeah. a dick. <laughs> I'm achieving some of the time, but not that often. Um, it, so I do have. I'm lucky enough to have two nephews who are detectives. Um, one is uh, a member of the STG, which is one level up from uh, armed defenders. It, it, but he's basically he's in the uh, diplomatic protection and like he's the guy in the black uniform that goes in when you see it on telly. Oh. Um, and and I've got a, um, a, another nephew who's a, in the Auckland CIB as a detective. And and through previous work that I've done on on the on a true crime story, um, I've got been lucky enough to get to know quite a few cops quite well so I do kind of try and run everything past um everybody really um and you know and and normally like those kind of advisors I think are pretty kind of fabulous because they kind of have um they want to make a good story work and they'll kind of go, well, this isn't the way it would happen 99% of the time but if this circumstance and this circumstance and um, I, and the, I guess the other thing about technology is that, you, you know, I mean, it, it's it's really interesting in terms of the technology that we can use as writers, um, including this new technology, ChatGBT, um, which, you know, and not at all in terms of writing for you, because like, uh, you know, I think that whole, you know, I understand why the writer's strike happened and I understand the fears. But um, having like played with GBT and Chat GBT enough now, I really do believe that you can you can teach the thing to structure something, but you can't teach the thing talent and originality and curiosity for um, the world and humanity. And um, it will always sound like Chat GBT. But what you can do is to get some really good information out of it. Um, and the other day, I was using Chat GBT for something that I was writing recently. And I asked ChatGBT um, what kind of material, if I was going to bury someone in the sand, what kind of material would I need to bind their hands and legs um, so that the and material... ChatGPT called the police. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Chat G... Well, that was, the, that was what I was... So ChatGBT said, <laughs> I'm going to stop this conversation now. Oh. And and I immediately and texted gonna... my, nephew, my nephew in the Auckland CIB and said... Oh, Oops. I'm not sure if you're going to be calling. <laughs> um, That's yeah. funny. So chat does have a conscience. Good to know. <laughs> but, you, but you can get around it. This is this, later. Someone explained to me that if you say, "I am an author um, mm -hmm. developing an idea," and then give the circumstances, chat GBT is perfectly happy to tell you. And, and you've just um, given it away for all the bad people out there. <laughs> Giving them a loophole. Right. <laughs> um, so, yeah, Scott, tell us about the challenges. They don't have to be technology, could be, um, but I know you write different genres. So tell me revelations, twist turns, mysteries, unsolved mysteries. What's what's a challenge when you're sitting down to write? Look, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky in that technology is, is only... It's only gotten better and it's assisted me greatly. You know, when I first started out, my first book was in 2005. Um, if I wanted to go and have a look at some old articles, newspaper articles, for instance, I'd have to wait, go down to Wellington, fly down to Wellington and go to the archives there to look up, you know, all the newspapers and, and stuff and and um, and get as much as I could within a short space of time. But, you know, now with, with things like papers passed and, you know, a lot of the... Um, uh, newspapers are still, you know, readily available online. So, you know, it's 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 improved for me. Um, but but in terms of of any hurdles or difficulties, mine really is in um, getting the key people to talk to me. 
So, like, I mean, if I'm looking at the one book I'm actually re or doing at the moment, there are two crooks that I really want to get what they've got to say, you know, and one of them's sort of hesitating at the moment. The other one is, you know, has absolutely refused. So, and it's like things like that are quite frustrating because, like, as Michael say, you, you, you want to tell the story as, um, you know, as, as accurate as you can. Um, and if you don't have that sort of that little bit of information that might be able to help you, you know, then, then there's that risk of falling into, well, I reckon it must have happened like this and it's, you know, it's going to be wrong. So um, yeah, I, I guess that's, that's my yeah, only Yeah, absolutely. And, and that must be the hard thing about non-fiction. I mean, if you're writing fiction, like you said, you might be able to sort of, oh, if this happened and this happened, this could likely probably happen and you have a bit of uh, creative licence, but I guess you want to make yep. yours as accurate as you possibly can. Interesting. Uh, Tom, what about your challenges in your writing? Yeah, I mean, um, in terms of the technology question and the sort of fidelity to real life uh, question, I, I sort of did just as much research as I needed to to get by <laughs> in terms of uh, you know the the world of um, the Macedon police system and everything like that, and, and but but no more than that because um, I, I really didn't want to get bogged down in the absolute fine yeah. details of this the, how, how these charges would work and is this realistic and. I mean, I have, um, you know, some friends who are Crown Prosecutors in New Zealand and uh, they, they gave me a bit of feedback and said, like, this wouldn't happen like that. This charge would be much more serious, et cetera, et cetera. But I really just, just wanted to, um, <laughs> to give the reader a convincing enough world, uh, you know, that, that it wouldn't sort of drop them out of the story, essentially. But um, I want to take a little bit of a, of a, of a sort of left turn and, and maybe ask everyone else, um, in terms of the, the biggest technology thing that I have is how distracting... <laughs> phones and laptops and things are for the actual writing writing yes. process um and and i've i've been teaching i've been fortunate enough to to teach um, a master's um course in fiction here uh, in paris in the last year and this is the biggest bit of advice that i have for students is like everything on airplane mode for at least an hour or two a day and try and sort of get that deep work done because um I mean, these things, the phones, they're, they're absolute distraction machines, right? And um, mm. I mean, I'm not saying anything anything new here, but um, I guess, yeah, Fiona, Scott and Michael, I wonder if it's the same. And, and for you as well, Danny, I mean, you're a writer as well. I mean, how how distracting is it to live in this world, world we yeah, live in? You know? It is, absolutely. It's funny that you said airplane mode because I'm on planes quite often. My partner actually lives in Melbourne and I'm in mm. Sydney. So I'm on planes a lot and I'm in airport lounge a lot. And I do a lot of writing in that time and I just realised yeah, because yeah. there's no Wi-Fi. That is just yeah, dawned yeah. on me. Here I was thinking that I was very committed, but it's because I had nothing else to do. <laughs> Thank you for blowing that out of the water for me, Tom. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what about anyone else on the screen? Yeah, I mean, Tom, look, just very recently, I two months ago, um, I sort of deactivated all my social media accounts and um, it was quite mm. terrifying. It felt like I was weaning myself off coffee and it's actually <laughs> been incredibly liberating. Um, you know, when I was writing my first novel, one, I wasn't published. Two, I was sort of stepping away from a profession I felt, you know, it was such an important profession. So I just, I would put the drop the kids at school put the answer phone on and I would work religiously until two or three every day and then of course by the time you start becoming a published writer and you're part of a community and you're also giving talks and you're mentoring and life starts to intrude until I really began to feel that um, it was intruding in a negative way and so um it, it is a real challenge. And for me, yes, I've had to go cold turkey, just <laughs> mm -hmm. deactivated. I haven't completely deleted them wow. yet to the next step. But it is, a, I, I just, um, I was at a festival on the weekend and talking about where we get our ideas from. And I think that, you know, your brain, you enlist your subconscious the more you're working on a, on a work piece of work. But um, you can train your brain to focus and almost be receptive to ideas. And I think when there's so much else competing for your brain's attention, it actually becomes harder and harder to have the, mm. those deep, quite meaningful thoughts. Yeah, it's just mm. That's interesting. I love the cold turkey. It's like it is one of those addictions that you just have to go, no, it's all or nothing. It just means I can't spy on my kids, you know. I can't oh. see what they're doing, which is terrible. So they like they like that period of time. <laughs> Scott or Michael, distractions? Uh, well, I like to work with noise. So I know that when, but when I say noise, I, I, I can't work when it's completely quiet so um 
I tend not to get distracted, but as long as I've got like a um, like YouTube, I've got some amazing jazz soundtracks that can go on for hours and hours and hours. So um, I, once I, you know, when it's my writing time, I just sort of plug that in and, and, and away you go. Um, but yeah, I it, it, I have moved from the kitchen table to to the office where I am now because you know just those distractions can be. Well, it's sort of like you know um, I got addicted last year to. Um, um, married at first sight, Australia, and it was like um, it was on pretty much every most nights, and it was like we call it maths. Maths, yeah, it was like boy, it was it was so it was it was so terrible, but I loved it, you know. And it was I had that as, as sort of a distraction. So my I found that my writing did go downhill because I had more on that. So I said, so so I removed myself into the into the room where where I've just got my music. I love that. Maths made my writing worse. It's fantastic. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, distractions? Yeah. I don't know. I guess I sort of like, because I've been a professional writer for, God, 25 years or something, um, I, I guess I've just, I've systematised my life to kind of avoid that. Like I've got, um, I don't know, maybe I'm undiagnosed something, but like I have a very quite <laughs> rigid kind of like formula to my world. I'm, I'm a member of the the five o'clock club. Um, I get up at, at five o'clock at the latest every morning and do two hours of something, but swimming, walking, power walking, riding something. Um, and my, my detective in my novel, Hannah Westerman, She's quite a lot of me. Like she runs ten point one three kilometers every morning, which is uh, I do ten point one three kilometers. <laughs> like, very exactly. specific. Like literally, it's very specific. When you get a Garmin watch, a diagnosis. This here, is, <laughs> yes, yeah, actually, that's what we'll do at the end. Diagnosis. This is the health version of, of social media addiction. Like this thing we can read your heartbeat and re like it's just, and if, I'm, if I do 10.14 or 10.12, my day is ruined. So it has to be. Um, so I kind of like, and then I get onto my standing desk and kind of um, do what I need to do. I, I, can, I can sort of silo my day. I've, I've learned to do that reasonably well. So, so I, I absolutely have the phone sitting there, but I've got to earn it. I've got to do that three oh, hours before I, I and then no. then I can go and, and, and do my stuff and come back in an hour. And yeah, yeah. I love this. So now the podcast, this is exactly where it turns into a therapy session. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that 45 mark, you know, period, people are feeling a bit tired, a bit vulnerable. <laughs> so I hear those questions. Now we have a surprise guest who said he may be able to gate crash and Craig sister your camera's off but i can see you are here <laughs> yeah that's because i've just run home from dropping my daughter off at school in england <laughs> so i'm all sweaty on the couch and stuff like that i didn't i didn't quite do michael's 10.13 kilometers i'm not quite sure about the about the point one three, I like round numbers like ten k. Right? I'll, I'll do. I think I'll do like six point two five miles because that's ten k. But it was only about a mile this morning. So yeah. Well, thank you for joining us, Quag. We're just about at the end. You've caught us at that really good part where it started to go into therapy session, which I'm I'm here for absolutely. Um, well, what... that's what I need. That's why I, <laughs> that's why I, I thought you were. Come on. I thought this was the new Fraser Crane show. Um, you know, it kind is. of they call it the therapy. <laughs> I love that, Fraser. That's great. Craig, since you have come on and done, done that running back home, um, have you got a last question for our guests? Well, I mainly just wanted to call in and say congratulations to all the guys um, and using guys as we used to do growing up, including Fiona and, of course, and yourself, Danny. Um, <laughs> I just want to say congratulations on being finalists. And I also wanted to say thank you to all of them. Because when we started the Naya Marsh Awards in 2010, there was some scepticism about how a New Zealand crime writing award would be sustainable or not. And I had confidence that we had the storytellers in our country and that new ones would have over the years and every year we would have enough quality books to have a really amazing prize. And so my focus from the start was on celebrating excellence in storytelling, having great judges who would make sure that we had great books winning. And it's thanks to these guys and those who've gone before them that the awards are held in such high regard. It's nothing to do with me. <laughs> I've just set up the structure. It's all the authors. It's all the authors and the quality 
of their books. And people like Scott, who've been amazing, he's been a multiple time finalist in our nonfiction section. And he's very kindly, the years that he hasn't had books out, he's been one of our Naya Marshall Award judges because he is just one of the experts when it comes to true crime and missing persons people in New Zealand. People like Fiona, you know, who was our first female winner in 2017. And it's wonderful to see Michael, who we've kind of hooked into the crime world when he won our True Crime Award, our first one in 2017, the same year Fiona won. And now we've got him into the crime fiction world, which is amazing. And his book has been translated into about 10, eight or 10 different countries and languages around the world now, um, kind of sharing Maori indigenous stories with the world. And Tom, this just outstanding young writer who's based in Europe and has written this really cool story set in rural New Zealand. And I'm stoked that I met his British publisher a few weeks ago. They're publishing him early next year. He's also coming out in the US. So like Michael, he's sharing our stories around the world. And as Fiona has done, both literary and crime. So I just really wanted to call in and say congratulations. But more so, I want to say thank you to all the guys, because you're what the awards are about. And you're what makes them so great. Oh, Craig, what a lovely way to almost end, because I do have one final question. (laughs) But that was a beautiful way to end. Thank you. It was lovely to hear your voice come on. Uh, Stick around, Craig, because the uh, Words and Nerds question, but it's like an elevator pitch. So you've got about 20, 30 seconds to answer this. It's really easy. Why do you write? (laughs) Who am I going to throw to first? Fiona, why do you write? Why do I write? Because, oh, because I would be, I would, if I didn't write, I would be very frustrated that I have lots of stories that I possibly naively want to make a difference. <laughs> it sounds a bit naive, but it's, I, I believe in the power of words. I believe in the power of books to transform people. And um, and I write because I love it. And I would, yeah, I get very irritable when I'm not writing. So. <laughs> Gorgeous and true answer. Scott, what do you write? Gosh, it's just it's just a part of my lifestyle now. It's just a habit. I know um, a few months ago, I decided that I would give up writing. I'd, I'd, I think I'd, I'll have done 10 or 11 now. Um, and I thought maybe it's time for a change and maybe resurrect my music career. Um, but, but then, Never too oh, late to be a rock star, Scott. Well, that, just that, remember well, that's, that. No, I, just don't ha- I just don't have the long hair, you know. <laughs> but... Um, but but then I then sort of then I do a backflip and think well actually no I I I think it would be very very hard to give up. Um, mm. I know I've written a lot about the crimes that really interest me, um, but there are so many out there that don't. And um, hey, I might come back as a um, a romance novelist or something. Oh, like that. Wow. Totally change the well, I've been married at first sight. To, I, 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 think, I, I think, that, I think that they're coming together. That will be a, a, a true source of inspiration. And romance is killing it and has been for decades. So there's something in that for Enough. sure. What about a crime romance? I don't know how that's going to work. Let's all think about that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Tom, why do you write? Yeah. I mean, Fiona, you nailed it. It's it's really fun. <laughs> I think why why anyone does it right. But a lot of the time as well, I'm I'm writing to figure out like what I really think about something. Um, mm. And I'm, I often end up being quite surprised by the end result uh, and Maybe not even trusting myself anymore. So yeah, that's that's my answer. I love that. And Michael, why do you write? Um, my dad was a Spitfire pilot in World War Two. He was one of seven brothers and went away to World War Two. Um, five of them were in the Māori Battalion, and one was in the Navy. My dad was a Spitfire pilot. Seven of them went away. Seven came back. And I guess from my dad, I really inherited this kind of like a passion for I I don't know for fighting the fights that matter and. Um, from my mum, my mum was this extraordinary writer who she met my dad when she was doing a, her thesis on his father, who was the first Māori Bishop of Aotearoa of New Zealand. Um, and, um, and she, I was an afterthought as a child. Uh, there was six brothers, brothers and sisters before me. I was five years after. So I kind of had mum to my own and she, um, (laughs) She taught me the love for words, like um, the nerdy nerdy game that we used to play together and we both loved so much was we'd pick a page from the dictionary and we would test each other on every word on that page <laughs> and keep score of who knew. Um, so for me, it was just like this gift from both sides of my Ooh, family, from both sides of my parents that kind of gave me a passion for Ooh. words and what they can do. 
What a gorgeous answer. Well, thank you so much from coming in all around the world and sharing your stories and congratulations on you know, what you've achieved and looking forward to those awards uh, next month. Thank you, Craig, for dropping in. And Tom, you'd like to have some last words. Yeah, I just wanted to, to, to say a quick thanks, uh, or maybe not so quick thanks to Craig uh, for being such a champion for you know the New Zealand writing community, in particular crime writers. Um, it's been fantastic that you've connected us all together and, uh, and shone a light on what we're all doing. So thanks, Craig. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Well so, said. Yeah, well you're all very welcome. I mean, I was thinking about my answer, why I write. I don't write. I mean, I guess I do have a couple of books out now, but I don't think of myself as a book writer. But I've written thousands of articles for magazines and newspapers in several countries. And I've always been a writer since I was a kid. It was always on the side of whatever I was doing, whether I was at high school or law school or traveling the world or being a young lawyer or being a legal journalist. I was always writing on the side. And for me, like some of you, it's that curiosity. And I, I like what Tom said about shining a light, because I guess that's what I try and do in my journalism as well. I like finding interesting stories and sharing them with a broader audience. Um, so when I did sports journalism first up, when I left the law, um, I, I wrote the kind of human interest sports stories of like, you know, the player who debuted for their country at 30 years old because they were injured when they were the 21-year-old star, mm. you know, that kind of thing. And, and I always loved those kind of stories. Even if I got to interview some amazing Olympians or All Blacks, it was often the, you know, it wasn't the Richie McCaws or the Dan Carters. It was the guy sitting on the bench who finally got his chance or the, the one who'd come back from injury or dealing with something off the field. I always just found those stories more interesting fascinating and i love shining a light on things and showing them to people so. well you do a great job of that craig and um i think for me just being involved in anything creative feeds my soul and helps my mental health so i think um you know i think it pushes the anxiety out a little bit always finds its way back in but creativity seems to be that kryptonite so Thank you so much once again, everybody, for joining me. I love these conversations, and I'm sure we could do a couple more hours, but you're all at weird time zones. I don't know what time it is for you, Craig. It's drop-off time for school, so it's not time for me, so I love that. I love how we can all come together. That, that is the great thing about technology. So thank you so much, and um, we'll see you. Looking forward to anything you produce, everything you produce in the future. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.